Today we're going to listen to Jesus' parable of the lost son or the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country to send him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fat calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Ernest Hemingway is a 20th century author and adventurer who knows about religion and rules, who knows what we call legalism. Hemingway grew up in a conservative suburb in the Chicago area, and his parents were zealous Christians, uh, evangelical-type Christians, but quite rigid and, and quite firm, actually extremely firm in their beliefs, their practices, and the rules that they kept over him as a child. He writes about that and remembers that in his childhood, that he just recoiled against the extreme of his parents. This is, and it wasn't normal, typical parenting with rules. 
Um, his mo mother, for instance, just parented him and made demands and rules of him that were quite odd. Hemingway had a sister closer to him in age, and his, his mom, their mom, would dress each of them either in boys' clothes or girls' clothes, like they would both dress as boys for a period of time. And then she'd switch it over and they both dress as girls for a period of time, and then and you talk about uh, gender identity confusion, all right? And so making, making odd demands like this, more than the childhood, go to church, say your prayers, uh, wash your face kind of demands. And the more it pressured Hemingway, the more he recoiled. And the more he recoiled and even rebelled, the more the resentment built between him and his parents. So much so that when Hemingway grew up, his mom didn't want to see him anymore. And one year for his birthday, she mailed him the gun that his father used to kill himself. After that, she constantly, I would call it harassment, um, constantly harassed him. You need to be doing this for me. You need to be doing this for me. You're not doing enough for me. You don't call me enough. You are, again, extremist and, and applying religious rules to it so that one biographer writes this as, as Hemingway is living now with this disappointment and shame. This biographer writes, um, she, told, she wrote to him and told him, stop neglecting your duties to God and your Savior Jesus Christ. And he writes, Hemingway never got over his hatred for his parents or their Savior. And he eventually ended his own life, too. I heard that story a while back, about a month or two ago, and I knew I'd be telling that story when it came to our, our legalism sermon today, and, and that's what legalism is. And with legalism, things go wrong and bad. Instead of a spirit of forgiving grace that makes things That's an ugly story. I almost didn't tell it because it's so sad and tragic. But in that story, in an uncomfortable way, I find myself as a parent. And I have to ask myself if I am too dangerously close to the legalism of Hemingway's parents as I parent my own sons. Uh, also, I, I, I know other parents, and I'm part of a church that shepherds and guides people and uses rules. And, and are we ever, as a church, or your own family, too much in line with the extremism and the legalism, using rules, but in an inappropriate way, like Hemingway's parents? And if so, what are we producing? Or maybe... We all can say at some point, we've been like Hemingway himself. And we've been hurt by legalism, by parents, superiors, uh, others, uh, even church authorities, even pastors, using rules inappropriately and in the wrong way, not under a spirit of forgiving grace. So, that's the bad part. The good part is this, Jesus has the answer for that today. Whether you, you're responsible as a person in authority who uses rules, especially as a Christian, uh, whether there's someone over you who uses rules, Jesus has the answers for us today in this parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. 
And so uh, we're going to look at this parable, and we're going to start by looking at the environment where Jesus told the parable. Just like last Sunday was the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is very important. The environment, the original audience, was a bunch of the Pharisees, a bunch of religious rule keepers. Today, when, if, if I were to say, ah, they were a bunch of Pharisees, right, you would think that I was cutting down those people, that I was... That, that I wasn't complimenting them, but I was calling them hypocrites, narrow-minded, religious extremists. That's what the word Pharisee, that's the vibe of the word Pharisee in our world today. But in Jesus' day, it was totally opposite. In Jesus' day, you weren't cutting someone down by calling them a Pharisee, you were complimenting them. The Pharisees were the celebrities of church and religion. The Pharisees were the protectors of high morals in society. The Pharisees not only kept the Bible rules and extra church rules, but even extra individual rules that they stacked on top of other rules, and they kept them like champions. They were, people wanted, like we look at models and uh, star athletes and, and Hollywood celebrities today, people looked at Pharisees and said, I want to be that someday, if only I could. So this rule-keeping excellence that existed, no wonder it prompted Jesus to call the crowds who wanted to follow him. Listen to what Jesus says to the crowds who wanted to follow him. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So now people who hear that from Jesus, they had to be thinking, are you kidding me? There's no one better than the Pharisees. They are so holy. I could never obey more than the Pharisees could. Jesus, you're asking the impossible. And it's that impossibility that stunned people. And it's exactly what Jesus wanted. Jesus was not saying, the Pharisees are obeying the rules and by obeying the rules, they're right with God, and they're part of the kingdom. Jesus was not saying that. What he was doing was putting in front of people the total impossibility of keeping the right rules in the right way, and as a result, as an outcome, it gets you right with God. Right? And it worked. The Pharisees resented it. That's why they killed him. One of the reasons why. And people were stunned by this. Well then, how, if we can't keep the rules, how do we get right with God? Well, first of all, keeping rules to get right with God, how many people does that work for? Nobody. Because nobody's perfect. So if you want to try to get right with God by obeying the rules, you're making a really bad choice because you aren't going to obey all the rules. Jesus wanted people to see that. And so it puts you, it paints you in the corner saying, well, I'm stunned. It's impossible then to get right with God by obeying rules. But Jesus shakes his head and says, exactly. But I have this gift for you. And it is perfect. It's my performance for you. And it's my promise to you that I've obeyed all the rules perfectly for you. And I've, I've forgiven you for all the times that you haven't obeyed them, and I give you this gift, and it is perfect. 
and it is yours. And forgiveness is perfect. It always works. But like I said last week, it's not natural. That's why we're dealing today with what we call legalism. Another ism out there, but legal, what's legalism? You see the word legal in there, right? The, the word law, rules. So legalism, it is this. It's what Hemingway's parents did. It's what the Pharisees did. It's using rules in a wrong way, okay? Rules aren't wrong, but it's using, it's how you use those rules in a wrong way, and you say, if you keep the right rules in the right way, those will get you right with God. Those will gain you approval and acceptance from God. That's legalism. It's having a legal relationship with God. And again, it doesn't work. But it's so natural. Here's how natural it is. We, as I study this, you know, and as, as we're sitting here thinking, oh, those legals, oh, those Pharisees, oh, Hemingway's parents, ugh. We just think, that's just, that's just crazy business. I never even come close to even thinking anything remotely like that. Let me tell you three ways that in our church, in churches everywhere, if you're listening to this across the world, this is true of your church too, we actually practice legalism and don't always know it. I'm going to grab a right from the story of the prodigal son here. So the first is true of uh, in the introduction of the parable. It's true of the, the environment, the Pharisees themselves. And so if I go all the way back in Luke 15 to verse 1, it sets the scene, and, and the Gospel of Luke says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners, right? The scum of society. Not the Pharisees, but the other end of the spectrum. They were attracted to Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, and this is the legalism of unspoken expectations. You don't belong to the club because you don't keep the kind of rules that we keep. As a matter of fact, you don't even have the same kind of rules that we have. And you don't care about the rules that we keep. Oh, they're unspoken rules, but they're part of our culture, part of our environment. And so this is, here's an example. Someone comes in and, and sits right here and walks right, right in the middle, right down the middle aisle right now and sits there. And that person has an orange mohawk and is dressed in a tank top and shorts, barefoot, and sits there in the front row, belches once in a while, and puts earbuds in during the sermon and the singing. And all of you can see this person, and right in, in our hearts we're, think, we're thinking, boy, I really want to love you. I, I think I need to go to that person and say, hi, nice to have you here, but I don't know. That person's different than we are. Uh, that, that kind of thinking is, right, uh, unspoken expectations. There's probably a church that you're going to fit into, but I don't think it's ours. Those are the thoughts that come to mind when, when we experience that kind of legalism. That you don't measure up to the way we do things. Uh, that's Phariseeism. That's legalism. Here's number two. This is now the younger son who demanded the inheritance and left home with it. Okay, this comes from him. He's, it's a legalism that I would call earned status. 
Okay, remember the speech that he practiced? When he had spent all that he had, he realized the error of his ways. He thought, I, I gotta go back home. It's my only place I can go. That's a great thought. And he said to himself, I'll say to my dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. That's an awesome, awesome thought. Please, say that to your parents when you've sinned against them to anyone. That's, he's on the right track there. And then it goes, and then the train crashes. He says, I'll say to my dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired Now he's thinking legalistically. Now he's thinking like a Pharisee. He's thinking, well, I've, I've blown it as a son. I guess I'm not your son anymore because I haven't behaved like it. But perhaps he'll take me back as a servant. My status as a son is over and done. I, could, I couldn't even dream of being your son anymore, Dad. But my... I can earn my way back in by the status of a servant. Okay, so that status piece, earning our way, there's, there's entitlement fixed into the earned status idea. Entitlement. This, this tempts us. I have the status of a tax-paying citizen. Therefore, I should not have to put up with fill in the blank. I have the status of a church-going Christian. I shouldn't have to park this far away from the front door. I have the status of a law-abiding citizen and a good neighbor. I have the status of a caring father or mother, a mostly obedient child. I, right, I have the status and therefore I have expectations of things that should come my way because of that status. And when they don't, I'm, I'm a good neighbor and a law-abiding citizen. And my neighbor wants to shoot off fireworks July 4th at 1.30 in the morning. Uh, I, I'm entitled to peace and quiet because I keep the rules. I have a status. I'm a good person. And my, and my microwave buttons don't work anymore, and, and it fails? Why does that happen to me? I'm a good person. See, you get that, you get that entitlement? That's legalism, that's a, that's a Pharisee. I'm, I'm, a, you're, I'm, a, I'm a believer, and you're calling me a sinner? I, I say my prayers, and you say that I, I should improve my Christian life and sanctified living? Right, that earned status idea is everywhere. Finally, the, the, the third one is the older son. He fell into legalism too. He kind of used the earned status approach and then he stacked on top of it. So his brother returns. There's, there's an extravagant party for his brother. And then the older son explains or complains to the father. He says, Dad, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You killed the fattened calf for Mr squandering his wealth over there. And, not, and I've obeyed you perfectly, and I don't even get a goat. He's comparing himself to his brother in terms of equal obedience. 
Oh, this is hard. This is hard, especially for committed Christians. Equal obedience. When, when I'm passionate about my faith and my obedience, which I should be, but that passion goes in a bad direction of legalism, then it looks like this. Then I look at others who aren't as passionate about their obedience as much as I am. And I begin to notice that they don't measure up to, to my obedience and my passion. That they don't talk about their faith on Facebook as much as I do. That they don't attend Sundays as much as I do. That they, that they don't use Christian verbiage in their conversation as much as I do. That, that they don't volunteer as much, that they're not giving as much. And that begins with noticing, and then it continues with mild frustration. And then it becomes resentment. And then it becomes legalism, anything pride. Well, if they're not going to volunteer, then why should I? If, if they're not going to give, why should I? Right? That's, that's the older son. That's legalism and Phariseeism in the story. Um, very dangerous in our hearts. So, now what? Now that we find ourselves as a church, and even as Christians, in three ways in this story, we can still go to the story because of the ending, right? Because of the Father who greets the Son. Uh, considering this parable this week, uh, with Father's Day being today, it, it, it just has made me reflect very personally on who I am as a dad, on my own dad, and for the first time ever, being a grandfather on Father's Day. And I tell you what, I don't, you young people here, this is not going to surprise you when I tell you this. You young people, you kids, your grandparents are not as strict as your parents. You can get away with stuff at grandma and grandpa's house that you would never get away with at home. Am I right? So, right, that just made me think about this. Why is that? What the, the parent relationship and the grandparent relationship. And here's what I'm thinking. Parents were under such pressure to produce quality products. Right? Our kids. We really, we want them to turn out well. And so we have this pressure to lead them and guide them. And, you know, moms, you know, licking their, you know, get that off your face. You can't go outside looking like that. You know, everything that we have. And, and, it's, and it, it's this environment that's, that's a lot of pressure on mom and dad. Do grandparents feel that pressure? No. Grandparents just keep us along for the ride. Send videos of my granddaughter at half a country away, right? Or make time for us to come over and spend play with the grandkids. But we don't grandparents don't feel that pressure. The grandparents are free spirits, right? And we spoil those little ones and we give them too much money and too much candy and let them stay up too late. And we spoil them. Why? Because we don't have that pressure. We don't so grandparents don't create those rules as much. And so I guess as I look back, both as a child with parents and grandparents, it was the same dynamic. 
And then as a young parent, and my, my parents were grandparenting my kids, and it was, don't let them do that! If I could do it over, if I could do it again, as a, as a dad, I think I would learn something from my parents, grandparenting my kids, and loosen up a little bit. And I'm not saying to not have rules. Okay? Rules are not wrong. Rules are not sin. But it's all about how you use the rules. And I would have injected a bit more spirit of openness, kindness, graciousness with, with my two sons as a parent. But I was, I, I noticed it, but I didn't think it was the right way. I was actually scared of it and told my, told my parents to tighten up a little bit. So it's just interesting, that dynamic. And I'm, I'm giving you that picture just so you see the difference and you get the feel for it. Um, not just parenting and in a family, but in our own lives. And, and we need to learn love over legalism. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. We need to learn as parents, as dads, to say, Jesus loves you, and I love you too. Even if half a second ago you put your kid in time out. It's okay, but we need to, we need to say that. Like the father in Jesus' parable, um, he breaks the rules, right? So I wish as a, as a parent I had broken the rules, so to speak, the, the rules that I gave myself, that I had to make rules for my, for my two sons. I wish I had broken those a few more times to create a spirit of, of forgiving grace in my family. And so here's the father. He breaks the rules. So here's what I want to do now. Let's be the son. Let's be the returning son as we're walking back home. And we, we don't even have a shirt on our back anymore. We've spent all, that we, all of the inheritance that we demanded rudely from our Father, we've spent it. And we have this re-entry plan. And we get closer to the village. And we kind of start wondering, I don't know about this, this uh, Father I've sinned against heaven, against you, make me a servant. I don't. And we're having second thoughts. And, and there he is. Right, right there in front of us is Dad. And, and he's there, and, and, and as we're thinking about the foolishness of our plan, he looks at us with tears in his eyes, and he says, My son! He does not say... Oh, the things he does not say is he welcomes the wayward son. That's breaking the rules. That's, that's breaking the rules of fatherhood. You don't welcome a wayward son. You cuff him upside the head and you say, what did you do that for? Or at least you lecture him and say, I told you so. I told you this would happen if you did it your way. Give him a good tongue lash and tell him he's never going to do that again. Teach him a lesson right there on the spot, on the road. And quote a Bible chapter and verse. It talks about children who should obey their parents, and you didn't. And I'm going to tell you a thing or two. And the father broke all the rules. And he said, my son, and with tears he hugged him, and he kissed him, and he welcomed the wayward son. 
He didn't consider it his son's job to not be wayward anymore. He considered it his own forgiving grace. And, and the job of forgiveness would make him not wayward anymore. He broke all the rules. That's what forgiveness does. And then our father accompanies us home. We're walking on the road together. And this is interesting. Then he gives some orders. He hasn't given any orders yet. He's been welcoming. He's hugging. He's kissing. And now we give some orders. And who does he give the orders to? The servants who we wanted to become. But he said, no, you're not going to be those. You're my son. You haven't lost that status because of my forgiving grace. And now he gives the orders, not to the son, to the servants. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. He approves failure. And by that I mean this. The son did not have an opportunity yet to prove himself. A, a second chance kind of thing. The, the dad didn't say, we, we need to put you on a spending plan because the inheritance is gone. That's just ridiculous. Like, you, you had a half a million dollars and you, and you wasted it. But actually, the father gives him an American Express card without a credit limit. And the father puts all kinds of bling on him that he could take the next morning to the pawn shop and get enough money to leave again. You see that? So the father is approving failure. That breaks all the rules. You don't approve failure. You correct it. Oh. He's correcting it. Not with legalism, with forgiving grace. That's how the Father is breaking the rules of fatherhood and approving the failure. That's what forgiveness does. Love, not law, overcomes sin. Thirdly, the Father enjoys this. The Father enjoys forgiveness. He says, we had to celebrate and be glad. He's beaming. He's celebrating forgiveness. While his financial advisor is saying, oh, you're crazy. Don't give him the American Express. And, and the Father in the story is not, oh, I don't know. I, uh. He's just breaking all the rules and celebrating forgiving grace in his family for both of his sons. We sometimes look at forgiveness like a chore and a burden. And, and I know it can be that because our, the sinful part of our hearts doesn't fully get it, doesn't fully grasp it. But the more we can see the joy that God has in forgiving us sinners, me, the more I can inject joy into my forgiving others and breaking the rules of society, of legalism, of parenting, of fatherhood, and celebrating the joy of releasing another person from their guilt. And when I do, I'm released from my own prison that has held me captive too. It took a lot for Jesus to tell this story. Because after he told it, he had to go make sure that it could happen. And so Jesus celebrates forgiveness. And when he's on the cross, 
suffering for our sins. He is in ways that we aren't, can't readily see, but he is glad. He is glad for you that you can be forgiven. Glad even for his enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Jesus approved you even there, even, even back in history, before you were even born, before you had the chance to sin and then to sin again, and then to not appreciate his forgiveness and, and sin again, Jesus says, I, I accept you, I approve of you in forgiving grace. And Jesus welcomes you, not as a shining saint, not as someone who's perfect. He welcomes you as a fickle follower. He welcomes you as someone with a weaker faith than you would like, and he would like too. He still welcomes you. Jesus welcomes the wayward, and the wayward is us. Ernest Hemingway went on to write a story in, uh, in one of his works. Very interesting here. There's a story about a Spanish father who had who had a conflicted relationship with his son, and he decides to reconcile with his son. And, and so he's remorseful, and he puts an ad in the paper. Uh, he knows his son is in Madrid, so he puts an ad in the paper in Madrid. This is Hemingway's story. And the ad says this, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. In Hemingway's story, Papa goes to the town square where Hotel Montana is. And he can't even get to the hotel because there's 800 young men named Paco there, hoping to meet their father who forgives them. Happy Father's Day to all you dads whose children need from you more than anything your forgiving grace. And Happy Father's Day to all of us Children of God, our Heavenly Father, who says to us, all is forgiven. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for your forgiveness, for putting your own, your only Son in the line of your justice, in, under its fire and anger and wrath, and in your holiness, in our place. Thank you for loving us so much that you forgive our sins, that you are the Father who breaks the rules of this world and of legalism, and yet maintains your rules that we in our hearts truly love, because we love you. Make us more compassionate, Lord, as a church and as individuals. Help us to understand this difficult area of, of rules and, and of rule-keeping and of using them in the right way and not the wrong way, and of going against our instinct, our human selfish instinct, going against it, breaking its rules, and injecting love into our relationship, into our community, our church, and our world, and to trust that love covers a multitude of sins. Help us be known as a church that practices love. Help us be known as people who, who believe in you and your love. And love us unconditionally as you help others, us love others the same way. Amen.